Tonight then, let us return to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We're really going to look at the first 14 or 15 verses. That's what we're going to concentrate on tonight. And the title I want to give to our address this evening is An Introduction to First Thessalonians. For the next few Wednesday evenings I intend to go through Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. And therefore this is to be regarded as an introduction. Now in this chapter here we have uh, the gospel coming to Thessalonica, Berea and then Athens. In New Testament times the Greece was divided into two provinces and Thessalonica was the captain or the was the capital of Macedonia which was in the north of Greece. And today we know of Thessalonica, we know it as Thessaloniki or Salonaki. But in New Testament times it was known as Thessalonica. Now it was a hundred miles from Philippi. That was the place that the Apostle Paul was before he came to Thessalonica. And Corinth, it's in Greece as well, it was the capital of the other province, Achaia, in the south. There are three things that I'd like to highlight in this introduction to help us get a grasp of the congregation and of Paul's ministry there at Thessalonica. And we want maybe first of all to step back a wee bit and ask ourselves the question or examine the subject, the gospel coming to Europe full stop. So first of all we want to notice the gospel coming to Europe. How did the gospel come to Europe? Well, the first thing we will notice that it wasn't the intention of the Apostle Paul to bring the gospel to Europe at all. It wasn't in his mind whatsoever. If we go back to Acts chapter 15, and at verse 36, here we find uh, Luke telling us the beginning of the gospel coming to Europe. And in Acts chapter 15, verse 36, And some days after Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of God and see how they do. And this was quite a simple venture for the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. They had been on a previous missionary journey. And now 
They were back at base at Antioch in Syria. And Paul, who was not just simply a missionary, but who had a pastor's heart, was concerned about how the churches had fared, the churches that he, under God, was able to form in his first missionary journey. So he said this to Barnabas. Now, we don't need to notice what happened, but the end result was that Paul and Silas left there and they began to visit the churches that they had formed in their first, or in, at least in Paul's first, missionary journey. And this is what he started to do. He started his trip. We're told again in Acts, this time in Acts chapter 16, at verse 6, Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia, that's where they had been in their first missionary journey, and they visited the churches there to see how they were getting on. And we're told, the verse goes on, and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. They wanted to go on into Asia. The, the Apostle Paul had this opportunity, this in his heart. Here they were, they were out and about seeking to look at how the other churches were getting on. They were getting on fine. Therefore, he saw an opportunity. Well, we're here. Why don't we go into Asia? Why don't we go there and preach the gospel? We're clearly told, forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. In other words, God says, no, you're not going there. And later on in that same chapter, in chapter 16 of Acts, in verse 9, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. Here, the Lord was speaking to Paul. You're not going into Asia. Instead, I'm calling you to go into Macedonia. I'm calling you to go in there with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul did not immediately begin to go into Macedonia. The great apostle to the Gentiles, what did he do? He had this extraordinary vision. God had spoken to him directly. But did he rush off? No. Again, as we go to Acts chapter 16, and a few in the next verse, verse 10, and after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavoured to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Now we're to understand here that, the, that Luke, when he's writing his gospel, does not go into every single detail about this. But what we are to draw from this verse is that after the Apostle Paul got this vision, he gathered together his contemporaries. He gathered together his co-workers. He told them about the vision, and they began to discuss it. They began to look into it. They began to examine this call, whether it was true or whether it was genuine. And that's how the gospel came to Europe, because they came together assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. The Apostle Paul felt it, 
and the others confirmed it by their deliberations. No doubt there would have been a time of prayer, uh, a time of brainstorming, we might call it today. But nevertheless, there was this time when the Apostle Paul and his co-workers came together and they began to examine this call to see whether it was truly of the Lord or not. So then how did the gospel come to Europe? Well, these verses that I've quoted to you, you might not remember them, but they are there. But these verses are telling us three things, how the gospel came to Europe. First of all, God closed doors. God says, no, you're not going to Asia. That door is closed. It's not for you, uh, uh, Paul. At this time, someone else will do it, but not you. Doors were opened. This vision came. The Apostle Paul got this vision. He was excited about it. Here the Lord has spoken directly to him. And by consultation and discussion. The book of Proverbs is a wonderful book. It's full of wisdom for us. And what we find here is that the Apostle Paul was prepared to listen to other people, to get their input, to get their take on the situation. In other words, he surrounded himself with counsellors. And this is what the book of Proverbs tells us. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 14, where no counsel is, the people fall. But in the multitudes of counsellors, there is safety. The Apostle Paul would not go out on his own. He relied on other people. He wanted their opinion. He wanted their counsel. Proverbs goes on again. Chapter 15, verse 22. Without counsel, purposes are disappointed. But in the multitude of counsellors, they are established. Is this not exactly what happened here? The vision came. They gathered together. Let's examine this. Let's look into it. Let's pray over a bit. Let us do this. They acted as counselors. Again in Proverbs chapter 24 verse 6, for by wise counsel Thou shalt make thy war, and in multitude of counsellors there is safety. We don't need to be brain boxes, friends, to understand what the Bible's telling us there. It's telling us to consult. It's telling us to make use of one another. It's telling us to put our minds together before we do anything. And anyone, friends, who would God contemplate for the gospel ministry or a missionary or any kind of Christian work would be delighted to have people come together and consult and give advice. This is what happened here, even with the great Apostle Paul. The gospel came to Europe by the Lord closing doors, by the Lord opening doors, 
and by those who were close to the Apostle Paul examining this call. And they all came to the same conclusion. The Lord indeed had called us and off we are going to go. And that's the way. And anyone, friends, who is contemplating any kind of work for the Lord will not be ashamed or frightened to ask people for counsel, for their opinion, that the call might be established, whether it be genuine or not. They were obedient to the call, and first of all, they went to Philippi. We didn't read that, but that's in chapter 16. And then on to Thessalonica and Berea, three important cities in Macedonia. Well, that's how the gospel came to, to Europe. Secondly, we would notice, friends, that this indeed was a very historical moment. A very historical moment in the history of the gospel church. As we said earlier, the Apostle Paul wanted to go to Asia. The Lord closed that door. And this has happened to other people throughout church history. Let me give you three examples. William Carey. I'm quite sure most of you have heard of the great missionary William Carey. Do you know that he planned to go to Polynesia in the South Sea? But God guided him to go to India. And he had a very successful missionary enterprise there. Judson, an American missionary, he went to India first, but was driven into Burma, again where he was a successful missionary. David Livingstone from Scotland here, he tried to go to China. We all know that he went to Africa because the Lord opened doors and the Lord shut doors. That's what happens. And uh, godly men, real men who are seeking the Lord's will and want to do the Lord's will, will be happy when this happens because they know ultimately when they're doing the Lord's will, the Lord will follow with his blessing. And this truly was an historical moment. It was a moment that would change the, the history of the world. Why do I say that? Well, Europe was the first Christian continent. In biblical times that we're looking at here, the continents were not clearly marked. They were not clearly divided as they are today. And remember, all these places that I've mentioned, they would all be part of the Roman Empire at that time. But in the fullness of time, Europe was to be the first Christian continent. And probably more importantly, it was to be a great place where the gospel went forth 
to all the ends of the earth. It was from Europe. It's only in recent, maybe recent century or decades, that Europe has lost its Christian influence. But once upon a time, it was the very lifeblood of the church. It's from Europe that the whole ends of the world were evangelized. Now we know that's not the case at the moment. We know that. But here was the gospel being brought to Europe by Paul and by his associates. And what a wonderful result has followed. Because Europe, with all its faults, yet with all that it did, it brought the gospel to the very ends of the earth. And for our own encouragement, it did not start off as we think it might have, or as we might have expected. We notice that the Apostle Paul received this divine call. This was God speaking to him, telling him to go into Macedonia, come over and help. He went in obedience to that call along with his associates, and you know, he went there and there was absolutely nothing, relatively speaking, to which he could build upon. Or you might well say, well, there, there was ladies gathering for a prayer meeting. That's true. That's all he had. There was no synagogue. There wasn't enough men to have a synagogue. You needed to have ten, fam ten heads of family to have a synagogue. There was no synagogue in Philippi that first heard the gospel in Europe. The Apostle Paul had no advanced party. There was no one there to welcome him. No one there to provide hospitality. No one indeed to show him around. No one at all to help him other than his associates. There was no advanced preparation whatsoever. It was truly a start from scratch situation. Yet he was called by the Lord his God and wonderful things happened as a result of him going there with his colleagues to preach the gospel. Surely this should be a sense of encouragement to us and to those who are downcast. This truly was a day of small things. But the Lord blessed their labors. The Lord blessed their obedience. And in Philippi, yes, he had success and then followed persecution and he had to leave. But that's been the normal pattern of the Apostle Paul and his ministry. Preaching the gospel, having some success, then the persecution, then he's got to move on. But he leaves behind a gospel church. And that gospel church begins to flourish and to prosper with the Lord's blessing all from a day of small things. Let us never then despise the day of small things. Let us never doubt what God is able to do. You know, if we are in any sense despondent, if we're despairing, if we look at the professing Christian church in our, in our city, even in, in our own denomination, or if we look at it through the nation or through the Western world, we could easily be crestfallen. We could easily be despondent. 
if we want to encourage ourselves in good and gospel things, let us start reading the Acts of the Apostles and to see what God did 2,000 years ago. And God has not changed. The gospel has not changed. It's still the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And although we may well be in a time of small things, let us not be discouraged. Instead, let us be like the Apostle Paul and let us be obedient and step out in faith and look for the Lord to follow with his blessing. Well, the third thing is probably more what we want to speak about, certainly in the next few weeks. It's the gospel coming to Thessalonica. And this is what we find in chapter 17. He had to leave Philippi. And then he, we're told he went and passed through um, Phipolis and Apollonia. Why did he pass over these places? Were there no people there to be saved? Did he not care for them? Is the gospel not relevant to them? Of course, all these things we can answer. Yes, he did care for them. And the gospel was relevant to them. And they needed to heed it, just as everyone else needs to heed it. But he did pass them over. Why? Because he would expect the people at Philippi, and then the people in Thessalonica, to evangelize these smaller places. The Apostle Paul was concerned with going to the major cities where the big populations were in order to establish churches there. And then when the churches are there, they would go out and evangelize the towns and the villages round about. He would go to the major cities. That was his way of working. And as we notice again, he goes first of all to the synagogue. Why does he go there? He goes there because he knows he will have a ready audience. He will have the Jews. He will have the scriptures. And he will have God-fearing Gentiles and others. And therefore he will be able to have an audience whereby he might present the claims of Christ to them. And this was always the pattern of the Lord Jesus, uh, of, of Paul. First go to the synagogue. And Paul, verse 2, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. Now he's preaching a full gospel to them. He has, or at least he uses the fact that they're familiar with the scriptures. So what is he doing? He's going to the scriptures. And he's opening up the Old Testament scriptures to the Jews. And he's saying things like, when you would go to Isaiah chapter 53, and he would quote from verses in Isaiah chapter 53, and he would say, these verses have been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. He would talk about the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he would go to the Old Testament scriptures and he would lay them aside and say, well, these have been fulfilled. Who has fulfilled them? It is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Would he not talk about the scripture that says he will smite the shepherd? And the sheep shall be scattered. Would he not say that's what happened? 
The sheep, who are the sheep? The sheep were his disciples. They forsook him on that night. And as he would go through the Old Testament, he would be able to prove from the Old Testament that the one they were looking for, their Messiah, had come. And this is the kind of ministry he had. And for verses 1 to 4, basically talk to us or relate to us his, his uh, mission amongst the Jews. Verse 4, And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. And as someone said, when, when Luke says not a few, he means many. And therefore the Apostle Paul had some success amongst those in the synagogue. And what happens then when he has success? Well, we find it in verse 5. The Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar. What does he do? He continues. He was there for three Sabbaths in the synagogue. But we are inclined to believe that he spent longer in Thessalonica than just three Sabbaths. What we have here is just his mission to the Jews. And when he left there, he continued. He didn't minister in the synagogue. Instead, he ministered out there, out with the synagogue. And he had success there also. The Jews were envious of this. They saw their, their numbers deleted in the synagogue. And they saw people gathered to the Apostle Paul and his ministry. They didn't like this. And they caused a riot. They got some wicked men to create a disturbance. They caught Jason. Looks like Jason was someone who was providing hospitality for the Apostle Paul and Silas. And they went to Jason's house, hoping they would find the Apostle Paul. But he wasn't there. Instead, they took Jason. And Jason had to provide some kind of bail money. Why? Well, they said basically to Jason... If you hand over some money to us and promise that the Apostle Paul and his associates will leave Thessalonica, then we'll give the money back to you and the matter will be done. And there'll be peace. And that's what happened again. They took security of Jason, we're told. In verse 9, that's just taking money off him. And this money would guarantee that the Apostle Paul would leave them, would leave the vicinity and go elsewhere. And that's what happened. And then he went on to Berea. And when the Jews of Thessalonica realized that he was preaching the gospel in Berea, they were after him again. There was no peace. 
No peace for the Apostle Paul. He preached, and as someone said, these that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. That's the effect they had. They caused a disturbance by the preaching of the gospel. They were preaching, and as we shall look at First Thessalonians, we'll see what he was preaching, but it was a full orb gospel. And they were preaching that Jesus Christ was king. Now, of course, he wasn't, he wasn't a king in the sense that Caesar was a king. He wasn't a secular king, but he was a king. And therefore, this would disturb the authorities. Because if it was going to be a king that would challenge Caesar, that would be treason. And the Romans would not tolerate that at all. But the Apostle Paul preached a full orb gospel. That he, Jesus Christ is king. And as we will notice, he's a king who's coming back. This is one of the main themes that we find in First Thessalonians. The doctrine of the second coming. Of that great day when Christ shall return in power and in glory. Friends, we hope to benefit truly from our study of 1 Thessalonians and how the gospel came. And even after a very short period when Paul had to leave them, he left a church that was strong, a church that was full of life, a church that grew, a church that was taken up with serving the Lord Jesus Christ in their day and in their generation. This is what we want to be. This is the kind of congregation that we want to be. We want to be ones who acknowledge there is another king, King Jesus. And I want to ask you this night, as we draw our time to a close, do we know anything of Jesus Christ being our King and our Master and our Lord? The Apostle Paul was preaching that to these Gentiles, or many of them were Gentiles. He was preaching this to them, that there is another King, King Jesus. And there's another kingdom, the kingdom of God. And we want to ask ourselves this night, soberly, look into our hearts and lives, does the kingdom of God mean anything to us? To them, it meant everything. Because they suffered. They suffered persecution. But they were not ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ. 